Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and what to do about it. I'm Julia Azari. I'm professor of political science at Marquette University. And we're delighted to welcome today's guest, Robert C. Smith, Professor Emeritus at San Francisco State University. Professor Smith is the author of numerous books about race and politics, many of which focus on the presidency. He has a recent book called A Question of Character about Donald Trump, um, and his recent article, Presidential Responsiveness from Grant to Biden, The Power of the Vote, The Power of Protest, highlights the responsiveness of the Biden administration to Black interests and the reasons for that. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I've come across a lot of this this work of my own uh, on my own when I've been working on some stuff on race in the presidency. And I'm really excited to have you here. I thought that piece about Biden was super interesting and will probably go on my syllabus next semester. I, I want to kind of step back and think about the presidency as an institution as you see it, since this podcast is is focused on institutions. So you cite some of the earlier work on race in the presidency, Kenneth O'Reilly and Russell Riley on what you describe as president's kind of hostility and complacency around the needs of African-American citizens. What factors do you think are most important in explaining why presidents are, are so lagging? Are presidents particularly lagging in this regard, or do they just reflect the kind of broader political system? Yes, I think they reflect the broader political system and uh, public opinion. The American public even in the 1960s, when the civil rights legislation was passed, it was it was supported by just a bare majority of northern whites, overwhelmingly, of course, opposed by southern whites. So it is always treacherous politically for a president or a would-be president to embrace the cause of racial justice. Yeah, it's one of the things that really jumps out at me is the way that when we talk about these issues in a contemporary lens, how much that history is still kind of weighing on these questions. I'm wondering how you think, since you're coming off of writing this piece about, or this book about Donald Trump, I'm wondering how you thought about that in terms of the, the Trump presidency. Well, I think the Trump presidency reflects a kind of white backlash. That is, I think, white, particularly white working-class Americans feel a loss of status. I think they feel that blacks and other minorities are advancing at their expense and that they are being left behind. And I think also they fear a loss of status in terms of the projection that within it. 20 years, 30 years, they will be a minority. They would say a minority in their own country. And I think President Trump effectively articulated and represents those grievances. So as I look at black politics today, it's almost the best of times and the worst of times. In the article in President's Quarterly, I talk about the egalitarian shift of the Democratic Party on race, the increasing number of white liberals in the Democratic Party, and their increase in racial liberalism seems to suggest, in the Biden administration's policy, seems to suggest the Democratic Party 
is prepared to move in a racially egalitarian direction. And then on the other hand, you have Trumpism, white nationalism, white Christian nationalism as the alternative, as the worst. And I see for the foreseeable future a clash between those two forces in American politics. A move toward racial egalitarianism on the one hand, and then a kind of white nationalism, white rejection on the other. And I think those will play themselves out over the next generation. Interesting. So I have this kind of written down here. I, I flagged the, the three questions that you conclude that article in Presidential Studies Quarterly with. And one of them is this question of how enduring is white racial liberalism in the Democratic Party? Has your thinking on that changed since you finished the piece? No, I don't know how enduring it is. There's really a Democratic Party now strategists, posters who suggest, as they always do, that the Democratic Party runs a risk of losing the majority, losing the presidency, if it goes too far in a racially egalitarian direction. And I think that still is in play. And so Biden's rather surprising move to the left on race, I think, reflected his understanding of the movement of the party as a whole. But I think also that it's possible that those forces who say, if you embrace racial equity to, in, in an advanced way, you risk losing the presidency, losing control of national government. I, I, don't, I wouldn't dismiss that. I mean, I, I think that's possible. But... I think it's also not possible. I think it's possible that we have, at least in the Democratic Party, which is the majority party in the sense of the rainbow coalition nature of the Democratic coalition as compared to the largely white Republican Party. I think the country may be shifting toward a, an egalitarianism that will not face a white backlash. But it's, it's not clear. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that that is a really kind of, honestly, very refreshing perspective, because it seems to me like the, the conversation space, and I, you know, obviously spend too much time on Twitter, like a lot of people, the conversation space is really dominated by people who I think are really confident in their answer in that question, in the face of really limited evidence. I want to ask more about Biden, which obviously is the subject of your recent piece. Um, but I would actually like to flip back to Obama a little bit, since you've done some work on Obama, and he obviously figures into any kind of discussion about race in the presidency. So you've written about Obama and put him in the context of John F. Kennedy and talked about what you call ethnic avoidance. And I know there's this kind of debate about what Obama's legacy was for Black Americans. Where do you place yourself in that in that debate about Obama's racial legacy? Symbolic. That is the symbol of a talented, relatively young black man with an African father, a progressive, becoming president is something I did not expect to see. I'd always thought that if there was a black president, he would be a conservative, not a liberal. And so a liberal black president, I think that's his legacy in terms of race. His historic legacy 
of course, is in terms of policy, is the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. As flawed as it is, it nevertheless was a moving toward the Democratic Party goals and Roosevelt of universal health insurance. But in terms of race, he himself says in his memoir of uh, his first four years that he could not really think that if he, he felt that if he had moved in a direct way to deal with the problem of race, there would have been an enormous backlash and he would have been unable to govern the country. I suspect that is true. And so, as in the case of John F. Kennedy, he practiced what I call the politics of ethnic avoidance. As the first Catholic president, Kennedy knew that he could not embrace issues of concern or interest to Catholics. The issue at that time was federal aid to Catholic uh, church schools. And Obama uh, was in the same position. And I thought that was an inevitability. There was no way that the first black president could advance a black agenda as a first Catholic president could not advance a Catholic agenda. It, it was always the case that a white person, a white president, would be in a better position to do that than a black president. In Kennedy's case, it was Lyndon Johnson who enacted federal aid to Catholic church schools. So he, this was a, a dilemma that Obama recognized early on, accepted, and governed in a race-neutral way. Yeah, if I can ask a follow-up there about about Obama and this kind of the Kennedy framework that you use, which I thought was really interesting, and I, I think I may end up using that in class two. I teach at a Catholic university, and my students will will sort of be all over that uh, that comparison. But it also made me think about some of the stuff that's really come out as I've tried to write about race in the Obama presidency, which is all the different kind of avenues of of the national conversation about demographics, race, ethnicity, immigration culture that seemed to really open up in the Obama presidency. And in a lot of ways, 2016 was one of the first times that we see like immigration as a top line issue in a presidential election. That's really that's really distinct, I think, in modern American history. How much do you see these issues as sort of all of a piece where the kind like where the structure of what, as you write, Kennedy and Obama are dealing with is kind of the same thing? Do you see that as being similar across these debates about Latino immigration, about about Asian Americans, about Muslim Americans? Do you see these these issues as sort of all being a continuation of the same themes, or are there some qualitative differences there? Well, I think there was a significant segment of the white population, North and South, that really only accommodated the civil rights legislation of the 60s. They did not support it, but eventually they knew they could not resist. And I think for that segment of the white population, even at that time, in the 60s, there was a status loss, a racist sense that the country was no longer theirs to the extent that blacks were allowed to share equally in it. And I think this, this is the base on which the Republican Party began to build its majority, beginning with Nixon, and actually beginning with Goldwater, and then Nixon and then Reagan, 
where the Republican Party came to define itself as the party of white America. The liberal, moderate faction of the party that existed as late as the Reagan administration, totally displaced by persons who are, for want of a better term, white nationalists. If you couple that with the economic difficulties of the white working class in the United States, and you bring those two together, I think you see this, the ultimate sources of President Trump's popularity, that he really, President Trump, really tries uh, in a way no other candidate in the past has to speak directly to those anxieties among whites in the country. Well, I think if you look at it historically, it has its roots in Goldwater's rejection of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and then Nixon's selling strategy, and then the election of President Reagan, uh, where the Republican Party was gradually moving step by step to become a white party. So sort of a progression really starting back in in 64 and sort of see it as a similar progression. And I mean, what's interesting about that is the the sort of centering of of whiteness as opposed to centering the other identities and that that's sort of similar to what Ashley Jardina argues about the way that the way that it works in in American politics. Yes, Ashley has a very fine book on that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's uh, cited in, in your piece. Can I ask you about this framework of backlash before we get into to Biden? So I've been thinking a lot about this because there's this kind of critique of the backlash framework that it's sort of inadequate, that it sort of makes assumptions that aren't supported about the relationship, I guess, between kind of civil rights or racial progress and the kind of reality of how how ideology works. Have you thought have you thought any about that, um, about this backlash framework engaged with some of this stuff. Vegetable Weaver has this critique and Joe Lowndes. A critique of the idea of the white backlash? Yeah, the idea of backlash is sort of a theoretical framework. I don't know. I, I in the current Trumpism stage of it, I uh, empathize, I understand the sentiment of white working class people in terms of a genuine, non-racist sense that they're losing their country, that this is a white man's country, a white people's country, and that is gradually slipping away. So I, I wouldn't think of the, that as a white backlash in the sense of a rejection of the idea of civil rights or racial equality. I would think of that as a sense of people who feel they're losing ground in their own country. That may not be much of a distinction, but the backlash in the 60s was against the granting of equal constitutional rights to all Americans. If you call it a backlash now, it's a sense that whites a number of whites, millions of whites, feel they're both economically beleaguered and that their country is stripping away from them. It's 
the declining number of Christians and their even mocking of their faith and their traditions. And people making up the population of the nation from all over the world, bringing different traditions, different values, different religions. So, and you see some of this in Europe as well. And so, I, to me, white nationalism, as I see it, is not racist. No, not necessarily racist or white supremacist. It's simply what you might normally expect from people who feel that their country, their way of life is slipping away from them. And they don't like it. Interesting. Okay, that's a really interesting framework. Um, I want to sort of skip us ahead. We're sort of jumping around in time here a little bit, but I did want to make sure we talked about Biden. Um, I thought that the the way that your piece in Presidential Studies Quarterly talked about Biden was really kind of fresh and interesting to me. We have, obviously with Biden, you know, he comes out of the, this 2019 Democratic uh, field as... You know, this remarkably diverse field, candidates of color, women, all sorts of different kinds of people. And then we get Joe Biden. And of course, part of the reason for that is his support among African-American voters and particularly older and particularly in the South. Right. So the story leading up to Biden's presidency is super interesting. Um, my, my first question is whether the Obama legacy matters at all for Biden or is the Biden presidency really primarily defined in, in opposition to Trump? I think it's both. Well, first of all, the Democratic Party has moved, I think partly as a, uh, as a result of Bernie Sanders' campaigns, has moved to the left from where it was even when Obama was elected. And so Biden, the moderate, is simply moved which is party to the left. But I also think there is this sense that Biden wishes to accomplish more uh, than Obama. I don't, I don't think it's kind of like, you know, world competition. But I think any president would like to have a legacy greater than his predecessor. And I think on race, uh, Biden for sure will have that. But also Biden has embraced in his Build Back Better program uh, and the infrastructure bill and the COVID recovery bill, elements that can only be described as, as social democratic, that he has moved the party to the left, not only in terms of, he, he has moved with the party to the left, not only in terms of race, but he has moved with the left more broadly. And I think that will likely, even if he only serves one term, will give him a larger legacy than Obama. And I think he will uh, cherish that. The legislative legacy is really important because one of the things that you point out in your piece is that when we're looking at the executive, we're looking at executive action to make progress on race, that that's very easily reversible and that we should kind of expect giving party polarization the sort of seesaw effect. I've, I've jotted down a couple of things that I was kind of thinking about and that come up in, in the piece, some of them, 
I'd like to get your perspective on. So the first one is Executive Order 13985. Um, what what did that do and why was it important? Share that with our, our listeners a little bit. This was the order where he directed his domestic uh, policy staff and the director of the Office of Management and Budget to uh, look at review on a federal government-wide basis the racial nature of what the government was doing and to identify areas where there was not racist, identify areas where there were more could be done to move toward a racially equitable federal government. And this was to be done over a year's time, report back, and then whatever problems were identified, the White House particularly the Domestic Policy Council and the Office of Management Budget would put into place policies to uh, try to remedy. I have not heard any or uh, seen any reporting on whether after now near uh, two years, what has come of that. I'm looking forward uh, in, in the future to actually see what what came out of that and what actions, if any, have been taken. And then he issued a uh, reissued an executive order called affirmatively for the fair housing to deal with really the foundation of of uh, racism in this country is is the continuing racism in the housing market, discrimination in the suburban housing market, and the lack of development in the inner city ghettos. And so he hopes to put into place of that, with that executive order policies to tackle that. So both of these, uh, the, the executive order on on dealing with racism in the federal government did not receive widespread attention. And the order on uh, fair housing, prison fair housing, uh, received some press attention, but not a lot. But both of these in the present polarized climate will be difficult to sustain beyond his presidency, even assuming he has a second term, because the Republicans, the conservatives in this country reject the very idea of racial equity. In fact, they claim that the pursuit of racial equity is actually racism itself. And so given the polarized state, of American politics, I don't think one can expect much progress in terms of racially and nuclear policies until well, one of the two major parties establishes itself as a clear governing party. And I don't foresee that for some time. So you can expect that when the next Republican takes office, he will immediately reverse both of those executive orders and we'll be back to square one. And then the next Democratic president will reenact them and then really back and forth, back and forth. Particularly on housing, I don't think there's a, a majority of whites who favor integrated housing. I think even liberal whites would object to placing moderate or low-income housing in their communities. 
And so I think that's going to be the most difficult problem. And of course, if you don't have integrated suburban housing, you have the ghetto. And the ghetto is a site for the containment of black people. And there is no thought, no thinking, hasn't been since the 60s. In the 60s, there was talk of a Marshall Plan or various ways of ameliorating and eventually eliminating the ghettos as places for poor black people. Uh, there is no talk of that now at the national level, even in the Biden administration. And one reason for that is I don't think we know what to do. I don't think the United States government, the think tanks, the universities, really have a sense of what kind of policies could be put in place that would ultimately eliminate the ghettos as places of impoverishment and transform them into simply black communities or to integrate the ghettos into the suburbs. And I think the presence of the ghettos, black ghettos, as places of crime and family dislocations and poor schooling, I think is the kind of real problem. As long as the ghettos exist, I think you will have essentially a systemically racist society. So this is really interesting, and I think that that's really a very valuable context for our, our listeners to think about this housing issue, because the other, I mean, the other stuff that I've got kind of written down about the way the Biden administration has talked about race and structural racism and kind of what people are looking at is really different from this housing issue that I think you're right is a little bit, is a little bit off the national agenda. Um, and I think it's important. Well, I mean, the way I think about it is that a lot of the the Republican thinking and conservative thinking that you describe has in many ways become the the default to how people think about race. Even it even sets kind of sets the terms of debate for people who are more liberal on race, but it often starts from a point of skepticism about the role of the federal government. It starts from a point of kind of, you know, assumptions about colorblindness that I think are pervasive across the political spectrum to a degree. I wanted to ask about a couple of other central Biden points. One was his State of the Union address earlier this year in which he talked about funding the police. And I know that, again, like we get a lot of like a lot of Biden backlash within the broader left coalition. And I I'm wondering how you felt like that statement fit into this broader relationship you've talked about between Biden and African-American activists. I think whoever came up with this notion of defunding the police should be given a substantial stipend by the Republican Party because that is an issue that has very little salience among black or white majorities. If the term had been reformed the police, I think that would have been broadly accessible. There's police reform is necessary. But the idea of defunding the police, I thought, was badly a badly chosen phrase. You obviously have to have 
police and prisons to deal with crime. And crime is as much a problem of the iconic ghetto as as anything. People associate crime, blacks, ghettos, Republicans, of course, are making a major issue of it in this year's election. They will probably have some success. So I think President Biden was correct in saying, particularly in the, in the context of the perception of a rise in crime rate, to say, no, we're not going to defund the police. We're going to increase funding for the police. And I think beyond the progressive left circles in the Democratic Party, his ideas, Biden's ideas, would be widely accepted. And I'm, I'm for sure they would be widely accepted in the Black community, which suffers most from over-policing in some instances, but increasingly under-policing, where they're insufficient, where the police force is insufficiently large to deal with a growing crime problem, particularly uh, the kind of random killings that we see throughout Black America in South, North, small cities, big cities. And so I think an effective crime policy is important, not just because that is an important problem in and of itself, but because it is a way if successful, to transform the image and reality of ghettos. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The um, and that's certainly, I think, like one of the kind of central tensions when we're thinking about the Biden coalition is the many different kind of pieces of the progressive left, but then this sort of more broad and nuanced set of of attitudes about policing and other things out of different. Uh, components of the, the African American segment of the Democratic electorate. Um, my the, the last kind of Biden question, and then I, I have one final question for you about the politics of protests that you write about in your article. But I did want to ask you briefly to comment on the appointment of um, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson as as one of Biden's sort of accomplishments. What? How do you see that fitting into his legacy, or do you have thoughts or ideas about what her legacy will be? The designation of Kamala Harris as vice president and the promise during the campaign that his first nominee for the court would be an African-American woman will enhance his record on race. I'm, I've been still trying to wait till the end of this year. I track, I've been tracking since the Nixon administration, black appointees, black, black presidential appointees, President's, presidential appointments of American Americans. And the record, as it stands now, are Clinton appointments for 13% African American. These are Senate confirmed positions. And I, I would not be surprised if Biden uh, with at least 20% of his appointees were African American. And uh, not in, you know, traditional race-related positions. But across the government, he has appointed African-Americans to a whole range of positions not traditionally associated with Blacks. 
And so I think for the record of his appointment, uh, is actually available to us, we'll find his, it is really quite extraordinary in terms of the quantity and quality of persons he's appointed to various, various positions. Okay, that's great. That's really useful context for thinking about the Biden administration. So the, the final thing I wanted to ask you about is what you get to in, in your piece about Biden, where you talk about the politics of protest. And that's really, I feel like the, the key piece that you bring in to explain why the Biden administration is, as you just described, is, is the way it is. Um, how do you think the politics of protest have shaped the Biden presidency? Not so much the Biden presidency as how it is shaped of the Democratic Party. And this began really with Ms. Clinton in 2016 when she began to embrace the Black Lives Matter movement's talk of systemic racism when she apologized for the crime bill that her husband passed. This came out of uh, the Black Lives Matter protests around police misbehavior, police killing the blacks, but broadly raising the question of systemic racism and the notion of racial equity. Mrs. Clinton embraced that in 2016, and then you had the George Floyd protests. George Floyd protests, again, narrowly around the issue of police brutality, police murder but raising the whole question of institutional and systemic racism. I think that influenced white liberals of the Democratic Party, and therefore it influenced influenced President Biden. That's historically the case. When the federal government, uh, when the president has moved in a fairly decisive way to address the problem of racism, it is always involved around the threat of protests or actual protests themselves. I don't think the uh, Civil Rights Act, Civil Rights legislation in the 1960s would have been enacted in the 1960s, probably enacted at some points later, decades perhaps. I don't think you'd have got the Civil Rights legislation in the 60s unless you'd had the massive protests of the 60s. And I think that is uh, in the nature of American politics. Presidents, even sympathetic presidents, are reluctant to move on what is sure to be a controversial issue of this race. I think they're reluctant to move, and they always would like someone to do what Roosevelt asked during his tenure. When he was reluctant to address the question of race, he said, make me do it, make me do it. And I think presidents always have to be made to do it. In Biden's case, I think it was somewhat different because the Democratic Party was inclined to make him do it, and he just went with the flow. But I think it's difficult to conceive of major changes taking place with respect to race unless it is powered to some extent by protests that bring the issue before the American public in a dramatic way. This is really just a very useful framework. I think this is super helpful for people to think about as we kind of think about the presidency, race, and political institutions to think about the role of the party 
coalition and the way that protest fits into those politics to think of that as sort of that almost intermediary between the president and the rest of what's going on in society. I think that really leaves us on a a valuable um, institutional note and one that gives our our listeners a lot to think about. So we've really got a lot to think about here. We've covered quite a bit of historical ground. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor Robert Smith, for for joining us today on Politics in Question. Uh, Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 